You are listening to the Edu Salon podcast, a space for connection and conversation around education. Each episode, Dr. Deborah Nedelitsky talks with a global education thought leader to provide insights into where education is now and where it might move next. Hello, and welcome to the Edu Salon podcast, recorded on the lands of the Wadjuk people of the Noongar Nation, to whose elders, past, present and emerging, I pay my respects. My name is Deborah Nedelitsky, and today I'm thrilled to be speaking with Michael Fullen, OC. Michael is the Global Leadership Director of New Pedagogies for Deep Learning and a worldwide authority on education reform. He's former Dean of the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto and received the Order of Canada in 2012. He's author of more than 40 books and holds honorary doctorates from several universities in North America and abroad. There's much more I could say about your decades and decades of experience, Michael, but uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really glad to be with you. Let's talk. Great to have you here. Let's start the conversation. And I thought I'd start with something that's really influenced my work in education, uh, which is probably a really small part of what you've done in terms of your publishing, but it's the work that you've done around drivers for education. So initially it was the wrong drivers for education, what I think you now call the bloodless paradigm, uh, and mm-hmm. then subsequently the right drivers for education, that those things based in humanity, equity and systemness is, is the way that you describe it. So I'm wondering if you can talk about those drivers, like what what is it that should be underpinning our work in education and why is it important for us to think about those things? Right. Well, that is timely because we get ever so uh, operational about the drivers, I guess I want to say, because the history of it you alluded to was 2011, the choosing the wrong drivers I did for the Center for Strategic Education. And that focused on what was wrong. It had touched the, you know, the right drivers, but that wasn't fully about that. And then uh, 10 years later, 2021, I did the, again, the paper for CSE on the right drivers for whole system success. So that laid out the thinking and I think some degree of evidence. But uh, now uh, we're building on that. And I think I want to say about uh, our, my modus operandi, increasingly uh, since 2003, when I really worked on applied implementation with the government of Ontario, with the premier, and now at all levels, I have been seeing practitioners as my best source of ideas. So I might have an inclination or something, but when I talk to practitioners, especially those that are doing things, they have insights that even if I have the idea, they say it in a way that's really much more accessible just because that's how they talk. So I've all the good ideas I've had, I could name a dozen really what I would say are insights. And they are my insights because I've chosen the words and positioned them but they are also the uh, content of it, the inspiration of it is from uh, practitioners at, uh, uh, at all levels of, uh, and certainly at the school and community level. So that's the background of the context. And now um, Joanne and I, actually Joanne Quinn, who works with me in the deep learning, uh, we are uh, halfway through our uh, new book for Corwin, which is called The Drivers. Oh. And the subtitle is transforming uh, teaching and learning uh, and education systems for the future, something like that. We have four drivers where we've emphasized, okay, these are the drivers and the reasons for that. We analyze how they're, how, why we think that way, what, where they're being placed. And each of the chapters, the four driver chapters, we have a detailed case of something we have, have worked on that represent that driver in action, that we've gone back and had to fill in the specificity I'm always looking for key phrases 
the half a dozen, uh, I'll say they're somewhat original because I think they are there, but they're not original to the practitioners. I plagiarized from them, but they're, they're original in the literature. And one of them is specificity without imposition. So when you get into change, uh, you, you can look at uh, cases that are generalized, you know, this and that, but you don't really under, you might agree with it, but you don't understand what it means in an emotional day-to-day sense. When you push for specificity, you get closer to that. If you make the mistake of imposing the specificity that you think should happen, it, it, it backfires and change. So we have this, I think now, this great partnership when we do things together with systems or subgroups of systems where they, uh, where we co-develop the specificity without imposing it. And then we, te- we then want to say, okay, it works and this is what it looks like, but we know it's come from the joint effort of um, our, myself, our team, and the people doing the implementation, whether it's one school or one district or a whole state. So with that specificity without imposition, does that mean that you're aiming for being specific and precise in language and practice, but that you're not imposing what that specificity is in any, in any given place? I mean, we have ideas about what should happen because the more we apply, the more we carry it over into the future. But every time, um, and this, this started in my nuance book, especially in 2019, the cardinal rule of change I have is the joint determination of what should happen in a given situation. So every situation is, uh, when, you, when you start, is to me a brand new change proposition uh, because somebody might think they know, but you don't know until you actually do it together. So this joint determination is really, I think, a, uh, a lead you to figuring out the specificity has to come from us as external helpers, but it has to especially come from the leaders, including students within the system, because they're the ones that are, are wanting and shouldn't want to have the breakthrough uh, implementation. So I'll, I'll mention three or four of my new phrases, I guess I'll say. Well, one of them is contextual literacy. And contextual literacy says about leadership, you have to learn, know or learn about the nature of the culture in which you're leading. And not only know that culture, but also know it deeply. And when you go into the culture, I'm thinking of you going to your new job, you're, you will be, a cer- uh, to a certain extent, de-skilled the first month you're there. Well, maybe more than the first month. <laughs> this is the exact conversation we had three years ago. We had dinner in Perth in 2020, pre-pandemic. Okay, well, I think. That was um, a nuance was already happening then. Yeah. So, so that, that makes intuitive sense too, that you won't, you'll, you'll have to learn, you'll have to be an expert and an apprentice is the way that Roger Martin put it. So, uh, in, in other words, you've got a lot of expertise or they wouldn't have hired you. So don't be shy about that. But you've also got to learn that context. And that context, it may be students and parents that know more about that context than even teachers. Uh, and, and certainly they know more than you do at that, that stage. Uh, you have to be allowed to be, as a leader, vulnerable, transparent, and be confident that we can figure this out together. And I have ideas anyways in advance. I'll be transparent about them. And the key thing about specificity without imposition is to be non-judgmental as you get to that, as you head towards that. If you start being pushy, judgmentalism, we better do this people back off, well-known change phenomenon. 
I'd read the work on contextual literacy in that nuance book, but when you said that to me, uh, you know, when I was going into a new role in a new school for me, and you said, you know, you'll be automatically de-skilled navigating that tension between knowing things and bringing experience, but not lifting that onto the new place, seeking to listen and to understand and to absorb what, what it is that this particular place and people and community are about, and then to work together to towards whatever the future looks like based on as you say external expertise evidence bringing all those things together but assuming a certain level of being a novice i suppose as well yeah and being an apprentice whatever word you want to use and uh i'm I'm fresh on this in some ways because i actually yesterday i just submitted a book uh to the publisher it's called the principle 2.0 and i uh, for josie bass uh, uh wiley and I had done in 2014 a print the book on the principle as learner. Eight years later, whatever, they asked me to do an update. 90% of it is new, so everything's new about it as far as I'm concerned. And it's got contextual literacy, it's got spirit work, it's got systemness, uh, but it has also the, uh, I've got eight school principles, uh, vignettes of uh, two to three pages spread across the book. These are from around the world that represent this. So. It's, uh, it's fresh in my mind that this bottom-up specificity, this driving locally and then upwards, is really how I now see system change. But certainly, we want these leaders that I'm looking at to be, to a certain degree, independent from the hierarchy so that they can, so that they can form the right relationships in the local community and then be so successful that then they're more confident to interact with hierarchy, but they're their own persons in their local community. And you talked about spirit work. I know one of your recent books written with Mark Edwards is Spirit Work and the Science of Collaboration. And one of the things I read in terms of your findings there was that leaders were successful despite the system, which I found an interesting comment. But can you talk to me about what that phrase spirit work encapsulates and and why that, how that came about and, and what the concept is there? The big insights come from studying something uh, up close and uh, and working with people that you don't always work with. So Mark Edwards is great. He's a former superintendent of the year in the U.S., which is big because there's 17,000 districts, people like him. Uh, so that he was, uh, and I'd done a study with him on his own district uh, in um, Northeast uh, U.S. So he came to me and said, I know things are, are going awry everywhere, but I know and I'm seeing districts across the U.S. that are really phenomenally, they're big, they're small, they're in between, and we should sort of capture them and study them and, and bring it to light. And so that's how we started, when because I looked at it a little bit and said, yeah, there's something here. And it was a bit of an accident because it's this spirit work, because in some ways, uh, I've talked for a long time, as you know, about moral imperative raise the bar, close the gap for all students, especially those that aren't doing well. And so that would be a way I would normally talk about it, but there's something now, I'm gonna say in 2019 onward, that's different. And moral moral imperative is not strong enough, strangely enough. It's much more, it's about, it's about humanity, it's about the human condition, it's about all living things, it's about climate, but it's about social development and trust and the way in which societies have, uh, are falling apart because of the the discrepancy between those those that do well and those that don't do well gets worse and worse on every dimension. So we uh, we saw in those districts, the seven, they're big, small, they're in the East Coast, the West Coast. The, the common thread you could see was that the uh, superintendents 
really, and they would say it this way, loved the students and families that they were serving. They really did love them. And it, it wasn't fake. It wasn't, it was really genuine. And uh, it seems so deep. It just, you just can't call it love and think it'll go anywhere. And, and you can't call it just carry. It, it, it just looked like it was powerful. Mark and I, I forget how we came up with it. We said, this is really like spirit work as we had been working and or studying with uh, some of the indigenous development and some of the uh, mysterious parts of the humanity. I've always been a fan of evolution uh, and looking into it and understanding it. And we mentioned it to the seven superintendents uh, one by one um, about uh, thinking of calling the work that. And within a nanosecond, each one of them, independent, ever talked to each other at that time, said, that's exactly what it is. It's, it really feels to me like this is fundamentally, we're dealing with the human condition, which is worsening, broadly speaking, and is very difficult in our circumstances. But what is working is the way we've taken this sense of deep care and coupled it with the strategies that we ended up calling uh, the science of collaboration, but really the strategies of interaction that would now include contextual literacy. And so that's how we came up with it. When, then when we started to fill it out through the interviews, it kept confirming and reconfirming itself. When people read the book, the thing they they latched onto right away was spirit work. And uh, it didn't come across as something, well, this is a kind of general uh, wishful thinking. It was so grounded in the case studies that people jumped on it. So I think to me, it's the kind of real phenomenon that is uh, up to the task of dealing with the complexities of the human condition right now. And people need something big and that strong. And in fact, the British Columbia, where I'm going later this week, the British Columbia Superintendents Association just did, uh, and I worked with them to do it, a set of competencies for, for superintendents, which they have now developed. And uh, the, those set of competencies include contextual literacy. The set itself is called spirit work. And they have an indigenous uh, set of leaders that they work with that embrace it and contribute to it, all of that. So I know it, it's a, a concept that has kind of legs for the present situation that we're in. And I don't think it's magical. I think it is magical in some ways, but really it's, it's describable. You can know it's there when you see it. So that bringing together of deep care and deep service and the work that teachers and leaders do to navigate the complexities of caring for and serving a community of learners. Yeah, I think, and we can put it even in um, research and theory terms. If you look at, as we do now in deep learning, what else is happening? Uh, the science of learning and development, the so-called SOLD group, it's, it's the acronym. And so these are the neuroscientists and researchers that formulate what we know about how people learn and what's going, what's important. And they boil it down to, I'll say three big things, and it maps on to what we stumbled on ourselves. One. One is um, relationships, uh, the building of human relationships as a precondition for developing learning. So there's all kinds of things. It's especially true for when you're dealing with different cultures and, uh, and disadvantage and indigenous. It's, uh, it's relationships. I, I love to actually quote in my new book, came from a practitioner. Uh, he said when I was interviewing him, he was talking about his, the district that they work in, a very difficult district in England, this is. And he said, the trouble with leaders is they start by being aspirational when they should start by being relational. This is coming from a practitioner, like he knows it. 
And this, this is what I mean. So the first, the first foundation of this is relational and it's deep. And then the second part is uh, the, the pedagogy. It's the kind of learning that has to happen. It can't be just care. If you just get caring, you just get nothing uh, happen except frustration. So you've got caring or relationships. You've got then the, the science of learning, the, the ins and outs of uh, learning. And uh, that's about the foundation of what it is. And then you have to figure out the support system that will make those two things happen, both of them and together jointly to have something. It's in some ways simple to explain. Well, it circles back to your right drivers, doesn't it? Where one yeah. of those that has always resonated with me and then more and more over the last couple of years really is that integration of well-being and learning. Yeah. That we're not we're not looking at them separately. We're looking at them as two things that need to be constantly integrated for both to happen, for flourishing and being well to happen and for learning to happen. Uh, and that relationality and connectedness is all part of that. Yeah, it's. I think it's, it's there more clearly now and I'm... Uh... I'm excited by it because we're, Joanne and I are in the midst of capturing it in uh, examples. We have four core drivers. They were in the one paper, but uh, well-being and learning is one driver. Social intelligence is a second driver, which is a fancy word for collab good collaboration. And the third uh, driver is uh, quality investments. This is uh, resources and money. And then the fourth one is systemness, which we can talk a little bit about because it's such an abstract term but it has more operational meaning for us. So I think those are, those are the, the drivers. And I, the thing I would say about it when I step back is, uh, I don't know whether you agree with this, but fundamentally the history of the school system is highly individualistic. Uh, you know, individual achievement, going to the best universities, get good, good grades, it's highly individualistic. And it's, uh, it's overdetermined by what I call the um, you know, academic obsession. That's the thing that counts. If you break it out into, as we've done and, and others have done now, into uh, learning and uh, well-being, you've got a very different uh, set of goals and that these goals now can be expressed as, and students love this, by the way, they, we can say to students age like five onward, uh, the goals for learning, uh, what do you think they are? Or we can feed them back to them. They are how well you can do as a, as a person and eventually in life, uh, coping with things, our six C's competencies, uh, how well you can team up with others to make it, make things that, that are improved, improved. So this is small scale collaboration. And then how well you can eventually contribute to society, which is kind of deteriorating. So those, those, those are the three things that the, kind of play themselves out through the four drivers. And I'm remembering when we were on the main stage at ICSI in Morocco in 2020, one of the things that I remember you talking about was the generation of students that are currently there and how much uh, hope that you felt partly because there's this imperative for change and that the students that we've got at the moment are seeing some of the, a lot of the concerns and issues in the world around them and are well placed to actually be able to potentially be the people that address those in the future and, and now. Yeah. And they, and therefore, the learning has to change to reflect that goal. The actual culture of the school and everything is, you know, we talk about the grammar of schooling that you've written about as well, and that has to change. So there's some major changes in the nature of uh, how schools are organized and uh, how there's relationship between students and teachers, trying to reduce the hierarchical nature of school systems. 
I mean, you work with practitioners through your work, but you also work with systems and with governments. So you work at a whole range of levels and you sort of have a window into a lot of those things and, and engage with people at different levels. And I'm wondering if you can explain systemness, but also a lot of the people that would be listening to this podcast would be practitioners. So when they hear systemness, they might think, well, that's beyond me. That's about the system. Yeah. What does systemness mean and where does the rubber hit the road with it in terms of someone who might be in a school rather than at a system level? Right. Uh, last week, I was with the, uh, virtually with the New Metrics uh, Initiative in Melbourne, uh, Sandra mm-hmm. Milligan, and and uh, they have 37 schools in partnership with them where they're developing new metrics to assess these five or six competencies that we are all focusing on. We are getting closer to um, making it practical for practitioners, that is the systemness thinking. So the general thing to say about systemness thinking is that we want everyone to realize their they are part and parcel of a system. And if you want to simplify it, you can say, well, you're in the local community, that's one of the parts. The uh, second part is the middle, which will be schools together or your region. The third part is the policy level. So that, but you need to be somewhat aware that that's, those three things matter. But the breakthrough is that directionally, I certainly have changed my uh, tune from the time when I worked in the government for the decade of 2003 onward in Ontario, where we, we, we did have a top-down initiative to improve literacy and numeracy high school graduation. And we did have joint determination, so we weren't bossy about it, but we definitely were, were driving it, if you like, from the top. Uh, and I've concluded, especially around the decade 2010 to present, I've concluded now that that's been almost a lost decade, that is we've lost ground and we've lost ground because education hasn't kept up. It's not their fault, but nobody's worked on it in a way that's kept it up. And so when that's, uh, by that I mean things have worsened. And, uh, and, and so now I conclude that the top is not a good player to change the system for two reasons. There's too much turnover. People come and go every three, four years. Uh, you just look at who's running, uh, uh, you know, WA in terms of the government level, the ministry level, what's the changeover in any given five, So the, the short-term year? political cycle means you don't get traction because a government changes yeah. and therefore things get thrown out. Right. And the second thing is even more serious is they, they the things have become so complex, you can't figure it out from the top. Uh, so they won't be right, uh, even if they are definite about it. So we, we now have, and I have a, uh, actually the third piece of this just occurred to me in the middle of the panel last week. But here's our succinct statement about it. Build the base, which is the students, teachers, community. Mobilize the middle, which is the, uh, let's say, local combination of schools. And here's the new one, intrigue the top. And so so I'm reversing the power kind of upward in, in terming that. The top will still try to be bossy when it wants to be, but we're trying to say to people, it's too complex for them to order you around uh, uh, you know, effectively. So don't worry too much about it unless they're really ruthless. You need to build up your base. The, your system, uh, the most important system is the one you have between students, teachers, parents, community. That's your system. And if you think of it as building up that system as a powerful component, you will be stronger than the other two levels or you'll be able to contend with the other two levels. And then, but you don't want to be too isolated. So start building upward. Some communities, that, you know, the 20, 37 schools and the Melbourne one, they want to they work on this together. They're, 
they're kind of excited by the middle, mobilizing the middle. And then the third part, which obviously I haven't worked out, what does it mean to intrigue the top? Uh, and I think it, uh, I don't know what it means actually, because it, it just went work, started working on it. But I think it is that you want to pay attention to the top. So we're just trying to figure this out, but I, I don't think it's necessarily kind of a neat answer. If you think about that example of the new metrics project from the Melbourne Graduate School of Education, that yeah. is a, a, a case of schools coming together to create a change they want to see and to yeah. show yeah. that it can work. And then, you know, universities might come on board and then governments might pay attention. So it's that thing where if you are, if you do have some bottom up or middle up change or middle out maybe change. Yeah. I always think that, you know, in the middle and and in schools themselves, that we have a responsibility to be that change that we want to see and not to say, well, we can't do this because of the system. We want to show the system what is possible within obviously the parameters of still ensuring that our students can be successful and that our communities are served within the current system, but also maybe pushing the boundaries of what it is that that might be able to become. Yeah, I think it's both of those. And this, the both, one is doing your part so you can do a lot of part at the middle anyways. But now I've added the part, like, why not be pushy upwards? Not kind of in a, a way that it doesn't work, but just say, act like you should pay attention to us. We're onto something. And uh, and I think that's an attitude and it's uh, it might appeal to the top actually because they don't have the answers. And now they're seeing help coming from the middle, let's say. So uh, I think that remains to be seen, but I'd be satisfied to build the base and mobilize the middle because I know that'll be a lot better than what we have. But maybe the next step is that we see some people coming together as a whole system to say that this is worth exploring in combination. A lot of the work that you've done is around leadership over the years. You've talked about your principal book and now your principal 2.0 book, the Mm -hmm. core governance, motion leadership, nuanced leadership, coherence. There's lots of those things that are about leading in education at different levels. Is there a way that you might summarize your thinking about leadership or are are there through lines through that work on leadership? If you're a leader in education, where might you begin with thinking about how to anchor yourself in your practice and and do a do a good job the core of leadership which is in this new book on the principalship is only only i'm going to say three things spirit work contextual literacy and systemness so i'm saying to leaders you've got that's your that's your um, going to be your forte or you're not going to be effective so be that and so that's that's one thing but also it's quite uh, democratized because i'm thinking of students as well, uh, the, uh, we, I wrote a, an, an op-ed recently on the six reasons why students uh, could be change makers. And it's, it is not just, you know, the kind of uh, Greta Thunberg out in the world. It's, it's being like daily, playing a big part of uh, uh, aware of change, teaming up with other students, whatever it is, it's climate change, it's learning. But it is about learning and it's about the drivers, really. So I think that uh, that then gets, uh, if you democratize uh, leadership to include students of all ages. I, I tend to think from age three upwards, actually, because I've, I've seen three-year-olds. That seems to be pretty smart. And, uh, and I think, I think that uh, the, the, the notion that young people are really better leaders in many ways than others, but you've got to team up and it kind of democratizes it, but also uh, says it's important. And it's always got, has to be collaborative around those three dimensions uh, by definition of spirit work and, uh, and contextual literacy, which itself is very collaborative. And then, and we have another uh, key concept, the last new one I'll mention, is connected autonomy, 
that uh, we worked out with uh, Brendan Spillane and others in in in, your, in Siwa uh, uh, over the last couple of years. So we just have published an article on that. So connected autonomy is trying to emphasize you you don't want to be swallowed by the hierarchy, nor do you want to be swallowed by the group. You want to be your own person. So autonomous autonomous doesn't mean uh, isolated. And then you but you want to be connected in order to be better as an autonomous person or to be influential as one. So these things, uh, these small thing, uh, concepts are liberating, I guess I'll say. They're liberating because they apply to everybody and they're liberating because the na- of the nature of the behavior that comes from them. One of the concepts that I've sort of held on to since sort of my PhD research, I suppose, and my coaching training, which is connected, I think, to systemness and to that connected autonomy piece, is holonomy, which Art Costa and Bob Garnston talk about it yeah. as interdependent partners, so that you're at, yeah. you're at one time both an individual and independent, but you're an interdependent part of a system, and that you're constantly being both of those things at once. And in my yeah. PhD, one of my participants, who was a middle leader, talked about this idea of that they saw their team as a tree so that the roots were embedded in the the soil and the ground of the organization. The tree trunk was the team's kind of shared goals, but that each person was a branch that sort of went off in their individual way. And I thought it was a really nice metaphor for that idea about being both individual, but together and working towards a common goal or a moral imperative at the the same time. Yeah, no, that is connected autonomy. So as you know, no idea is uh, usually original. Uh, we we happen to call it connected autonomy, but it's, uh, it's pretty much identical to what you just described. What all of these things are talking about is navigating the complexities that you're talking about of, of a human yeah. adaptive system that is an ecosystem yeah. that is constantly changing and that has different multiple moving parts to it. So I think it's all about trying to make sense of that complexity and that humanity uh, and then figure out how we move forward together in something where there are multiple individuals, many of whom are always thinking, what does this mean for me? Or, you know, how can I best yeah. be successful? But there's that bigger societal and human imperative that you're talking about as well. The other message is right now, this is pretty precarious. It could get worse, much worse. Uh, so I'm not optimistic. I just think we need to try or it could get better. And the and you need to you need to take a chance with larger chunks along the way. And we have one now just because it's very specific, I'll tell you, in uh, California, where we work quite a lot, we're working with San Diego County, which is one of uh, 58 counties in the, in the state of California. Uh, San Diego County has uh, 42 di- school districts and has 500,000 students. And they have, we have a partnership with them to help them do it. They have uh, passed at the board level, the county board level, the following plan. We are going to reduce poverty in the next seven years in this county by 33% as we increase learning. So po- reduce poverty. And there's very specific uh, strategies for reducing poverty, which are uh, community hubs, uh, medical support, financial support, helping adults get jobs. It's so, it's so complicated, you could say, well, it's never going to work. But it is really a redefinition that says it's not the school and the district that we're just interested in. We're interested in the immediate e- ecosystem of the community and the school. And we're not, they're not the first one to say that, but this is actually saying it publicly and say, we're going to work on it and we're going to change it. And this is, this is what you can hold us to when, when you uh, assess it over the next seven years. So systems being more open about the kinds of really 
audacious and aspirational societal goals rather than individualistic goals or specific measurement of achievement and that kind of thing. That for sure. And also admitting that the current strategies don't touch those fundamental things. Therefore, it can never work. Equity can never work under the current strategy. Never. So acknowledging that the inequities that we're seeing are something that we need to be really serious about addressing. Yeah. If you just take the US, the amount of money poured into equity over the last 50 years is enormous. And yet results went down, down, down all the time. And I, I say part of the reason is that equity has been siloed. The equity is, uh, is always uh, you know, making up for the loss, making up for this and that. We're trying to make equity part and parcel of that, build the relationships around contextual literacy, have the, the well-being and the learning being part of that, make the assumption, and I think this is somewhat true, that uh, those students who have had most difficulty in terms of poverty and other things possibly make better problem solvers than those students that have sailed through if we can target and develop everybody, that they actually have more life experiences that would make them even better citizens than had they not, provided they survive and get some of the skills that we're talking about. Mm. You've been in education some years, Michael. Yeah. yeah. And you talked a bit before about something that you changed your mind about uh, from the sort of 2003 decade to now. Are there other things that, as you look back, you think, well, I really shifted my thinking on that particular thing? Yeah, Andy and I've had this uh, debate privately and publicly sometimes about, oh, you uh, you were in favor of testing in the wrong way, wasn't that, uh, you know, is that big criticism? But I'm, I'm saying, well, what most people do when they find new evidence is they do change their mind. And what was what was right about it in, you know, 20, uh, 20, 2008 is not right uh, these days about it. So I didn't change my mind because I was wrong. I changed my mind because the situation requires more. So I certainly have changed that way of change from looking at the whole system. Uh, I was more, more looking at it too much abstractly and trying to figure it out that way without the close involvement of the bottom, to use that language. Uh, I think some of the testing, the way we looked at that was a bit, was not going to be the right lever for that. And uh, I think I probably historically have paid more attention to leaders, like school leaders and uh, others, than I have to teachers, for example, even though Andy and I did the professional capital book, which is right on, especially there because of him. So I think um, I've just become more sensitized in, into the nuance that I wrote about in 2019. I, I definitely have learned from nuance. And that nuance is the wisdom of people from three-year-olds three upward in the uh, in the schools and the societies we're talking about and having them be part of the solution not mm. just part of the outcome thank you so we're coming to the end of our time together and i'm going to move us to the final five questions which i call the enlightening round right all right i'll be quick <laughs> well it doesn't sometimes it's lightning sometimes it, it takes a bit longer <laughs> uh, but okay. the first one is what is something unexpected that people might not know about you i'm i'm the oldest of seven boys and we uh, grew up as a hockey family, kind of somewhat poor, east end of Toronto. And uh, I, I didn't write my first book till I was age 42. I was a late bloomer. So I think that combination of uh, not being serious, let's say, about, uh, about uh, academic things, and then eventually coming back and uh, getting started in a time and then accelerating what, by, by the time I was in my 40s, that would be one thing I would mention. 
And has it been then almost a book a year since then? More than that. More than Somebody that. asked me that today. Uh, uh, it, yeah, it's been, it's more like, uh, I think I've written, I don't count them literally, but somebody does. Uh, and it's in, I think it's probably over 50, but it's more, it's one to two books a year steady on. But uh, it's like, I know in golf, people say they want to shoot their age. So if you're 75, you shoot 75. I don't think I'm, I'd have to write, uh, you know, two books a year to to get to shoot my age book-wise. And what drives you to write books? Because some people would say, oh, you know, they're important. Some people in the academy would say books aren't important. You know, journal articles in tier yeah. one journals are important. So why is it that you're driven to write books about education? I guess I will say that I have not been driven in the fundamental sense we usually mean this by moral purpose. I haven't like when I was in my early stage of the career saying, I've got to solve these problems, these kids are suffering. I wasn't the moral purpose guy, but I was driven by the attraction of solving complex social problems. And that's kind of an ac academic way of putting it. So I couldn't learn enough. And because the problems are, uh, the best insights are in the hands of the practitioners, I was drawn into that, but not that crowd. And that's where I spend almost all my time, spend 90% of my time with practitioners and 10% with other academics. I sleep in two shifts usually, I, like these days I am. Uh, so I get, I go to bed at uh, 10.30, I wake up at 2.30, I work for two and a half hours, I sleep from five till uh, seven or 7.30, get up again. So I, I really am in two shifts and I'm uh, driven to work on this, especially writing on a book. And it doesn't seem like work. It just seems like, okay, that's what I do. And so in that sense, the, the pandemic has been a, has done me favors because I spent 30% of my time traveling before, and now I spent 1% of my time traveling. So the other time, even though it's virtual, it's work. And so work is uh, work is my life, but uh, I, I don't know what motivates it other than the idea of solving problems and writing and having people like your books. Mm. And I think one of the things that you're doing, you talked about some of the terms and phrases that you've used, is that distilling things down to make them accessible <clears> so that yeah. people can hang on, understand that abstract theory and maybe apply that pr practically. Yeah, that nothing actually makes me more satisfied than a, a principal or a teacher who will say, read something that I wrote and said, it was as, as if you were in my school, in my classroom. It, it's like, that, I love that kind of phrase. Whereas if an academic said to me, oh, great book, it doesn't mean as much. Mm. So meaningful contribution to the profession um, of yeah. teachers and leaders in schools. Yep. So my next question is, what is something that is currently on your desk? Something currently on my desk, a glass of wine. This is nighttime, you know. <laughs> Just notes from uh, things I'm writing. And over to the right is I've got my my 12 books that I'm uh, absorbing now. Mm -hmm. And I just want to show you this because you asked. This is one of my favorite new books. The Persuaders, Anand Giridharadas. Yeah, it's a hard name to pronounce, but uh, he wrote a book three years ago called Winner Takes All, which was a, a critique against those that made all the money and, and gave it back through foundations, which never changed anything. So now he's tackled why are people in the U.S., why are people uh, stuck on uh, extreme right, extreme left? And his solution, which very much appeals to me, is you figure out what are the strategies of persuasion that are going to break through the, the, the rigid things? Mm. One of the phrases I've, I think I coined uh, is impressive empathy. And impressive empathy is when you have, try to have and have empathy for other people who are in your way. 
That's why it's impressive. And so you go out of your way to try to understand the other point of view. And this is part of the breakthrough of uh, getting collaboration to work Mm. with different uh, purposes. Yeah, I absolutely think that in collaboration in a professional space, particularly that seeking to deeply understand conflicting viewpoints is really important to move forward and to really understand what that dissent or that disagreement might be able to contribute to a better outcome rather than what sometimes happens, which is dismissing that. Exactly. What about who is someone that inspires you in the work that you do? The people side, we were talking about this around the dinner table earlier tonight. In the house now, we have two boys and uh, and uh, my wife and I. And we, so we talk usually every day at two, four o'clock for an hour or two. And there's hardly anybody of the leaders that we rent, look around the world that we can say we admire or think are great or working. It's not that we dislike them all. So in that sense, I'm going to say there's hardly anybody, and that's the problem, in the leadership domain that stands out as uh, admirable and those that uh, are quite good in some ways, attractive, turns out to not to be necessarily efficacious. So so we're kind of at a loss. That's why we go down to give me a three-year-old uh, as the new leader and we'll, then we'll go somewhere. So students and young people more inspirational than perhaps our world leaders. Yeah, yeah very much so, yeah. Mm. And also I wanted to comment, we can't leave this uh, you're one of the Michael Fullen uh, research awardees from the Journal of Professional Capital and Community, that, uh, something that Andy set up five years ago uh, in my name, which was great for him to do that. But uh, now we have, I think, four people. I don't think you get connect you to each other, but I'm always thrilled each year to see, okay, here's somebody else. Mm, it was wonderful to receive that, although that was a pandemic reception. So I think rather than coming to yeah, receive it from you in person, yeah. I, uh, I took a photo yeah. um, of myself in my home in Perth. Yeah, I don't think, I think, uh, yeah, I think Cecilia Azarin was the only one in Perth, per, the very first one mm-hmm. was the only one. Uh, that's a bad coincidence that we started the award when the, uh, when immediately the pandemic followed it. Mm. So, yeah. And how about one thing that you have coming up that you're excited about? Not only the book on, uh, the, the, the good book on the drivers, because the others were articles and, and kind of initial formulations, but this is a thorough tr- treatment of it. But the combination of that book and it being written in the midst of us doing big things, deep learning, uh, we didn't talk about deep learning, but our, our work is expanding like, uh, you know, groups of schools in New South Wales are joined recently, South Australia, Melbourne, uh, just to stick with, uh, with Australia. So there, we really have the excitement of these and they're doing tremendous work, those networks of schools, they're using our materials, we interact with them, we help them, but they do it themselves. And when, when they have a, uh, a symposium or something, and they'll invite, you know, the, the, everybody in the region have a hundred people, they're doing 99% of the talking of what it is they're doing. They're talking about our, with our concepts, but it's there, they own them. They, they've made them come alive. And so that this is, uh, this is really fantastic. And so that, that combination of uh, writing the one or two books a year that I do, which are always based on the work, and the really strong growth of these schools that we're working in 20 countries now and uh, and the fact that these are uh, counter to the status quo expanding gives me some great excitement and i'm not i'm not overly confident because the world is such a mess and it's strongly strong strong mess so i'm not overconfident but i know it's worth doing and if you were to distill your current thinking about education to its essence what is one thought or resource that you would leave listeners with we have to change the purpose of uh, education. 
the purpose of education has been individualistic and academic for the grammar of schooling, 200 years. And it's hard to change it, but the change has to be the new purpose is not only well-being and learning, but it's individual, collective, which I mean small group, and societal. That's these young people coming up have the opportunity to be all three of those things and to do it around a deeper set of, uh, of goals. And we call it the humanity paradigm. And it is uh, juxtaposed to the what I've called the bloodless paradigm. It's not really bloodless because it's spilled a lot of blood, mm. but it's bloodless in terms of this lack of humanity as a driver. And so I think the humanity paradigm makes sense. It fits. It's not like we're making it up over here. People are doing it, so they gravitate towards it that way. They do more of it. It spreads. And that's our hope for uh, the next uh, five years. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today on the Edu Salon. Well, good. Great questions. Love talking to you. We'll do it in purpose again. We'll have lunch in Perth sometime in 2023. Yes, or South Australia. <laughs> not, not in Perth, in Adelaide. See you there. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Edu Salon podcast. You can join the conversation by subscribing to this podcast and sharing it with your network by giving this podcast a rating or review and by connecting with Deb and her guests on social media.